Well, friends, if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, you can turn to Philippians chapter four, beginning at verse 10 is where we're gonna be this morning. Philippians chapter four, beginning in verse 10. Verse 10 of Philippians chapter four. As you turn there, let me ask the question, what would you like to argue about today? I feel like that's the way we should start a lot of our conversations these days, right? I mean, we just see each other. It doesn't matter where. Uh, we see each other, and that's kind of the first thought. What, what do you want to argue about today? Is it politics? Is it uh, relations between people? Is it uh, between whether or not we should wear a mask or where we should wear a mask or even if a mask does any good? What would you like to argue about today? I feel like that's how we should begin so many of our conversations right now. But in contrast to the contentiousness of our culture, which has been deemed rightly so in many ways a cancel culture, in contrast to that, our aim at Catalyst Church is to be a church of gospel culture, a church of gospel culture. We believe the gospel, the good news that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and on the third day rose again in accordance with the scriptures. The apostle Paul wrote a letter to a church, and he said, this is of first importance for you as a church. He said, it's not the only thing that matters, but it's the first thing that matters. And it's the thing that if you get this wrong, it's going to influence everything else, and it doesn't matter what else you get right. He said the gospel is of first importance. We are a church where we want to believe the gospel well, and all of our doctrines flow from the gospel. But we don't want to be content with only gospel doctrine, right, with only believing the gospel. We want it to infiltrate our behavior and the way we interact with each other. We don't just want gospel doctrine. We also want gospel culture. We want it to be true in our marriages. We want it to be true in our singleness. We want it to be true in our families. And we want it to be true in our church. We had a conversation among leaders the other day. And I said, imagine uh, that somebody walked into Catalyst Church with a strong and real and pressing and paralyzing fear. And they were scared of this topic or thing, whatever it was. Now imagine if, if I, I invited them in and I dismissed their fear as silly and then I told them John 3.16. Well, they're not going to hear the gospel in John 3.16 because they didn't feel or see the gospel in the way I treated them. In the same way, we don't just want gospel doctrine, we want gospel culture. And at the root of gospel culture is a contentment in Christ, a contentment that Jesus really did pay it all, that when he died, it really did work and satisfy the wrath of God, that God really is on the throne providentially working in our lives and in our world. At the root of gospel culture is contentment. I want to talk to you this morning about contentment. So are you content? Or are you contentious? Are you content or are you contentious? As Paul write, writes these words, he's in prison in Rome and he's kept at a distance from his recipients, the Philippian believers, these people that he holds uh, closely in his heart. He says, I hold you with the affection of Christ in chapter one. He says, it's right for me to hold you in my heart. The Philippians had been experiencing some financial troubles, but they had wanted to send help. They had wanted to remind Paul that they loved him and they cared about him, but they were in this kind of tough moment. So finally, they send a man named Epaphroditus to go to Paul 
to represent their concern for him, to carry with, them a, with him a financial gift. And Epaphroditus nearly died in his delivery of these finances and friendship to Paul. And Paul says the result, that was, that, the result was that he rejoiced. You can imagine the Apostle Paul in prison. He's dependent on outside help for everything. And he's thinking about the Philippian believers when all of a sudden here comes one, right? Here, here comes Epaphroditus displaying their love. Paul says this in verse 10. He says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. For you were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Paul says, your love towards me caused me to rejoice in the Lord. I love the way that the, uh, the Apostle Paul says, it's not just you and me at work here, right? The Lord is at work in our friendship. So for the, the Apostle Paul, the, his friendships pointed him to the Lord. And he says, you have revived your concern for me. That word revived means blossomed, like a flower in the spring, it blossomed. He says they, they had cared, but that care is now blossoming. I find in my own heart, for some of my brothers and sisters, the more I get to know them, the more my care and love for them is blossoming. Blossoming, that's the word, I'm, I'm a speaker, right? Blossoming, there it is, right? It's growing, it's, it's, it's not that it never existed, but now it's working itself out. I, I feel like that's happening in my heart, even in this own season, towards some of my brothers and sisters. I was on a phone call the other day with about 25 pastors from the area and uh, a local uh, a leader. I was the only Caucasian pastor on the call. And I just listened. And I heard my brother, and I heard my sister, and I loved them well. I tried to hear them. And, and what I found is that as I hear my brothers and sisters, my heart blossoms. As we love our Lord, our love for our brother and sister is ever blossoming. It's not just across races, but it is across races, right? When I think about my own heart and, and my desire to create gospel culture in my own heart, there seems to be a disconnect when I say I love my brother, but I remain unaware of what pains my brother. And once I become aware of it, there's a disconnect if I continue to say I love my brother, but I don't do anything about it. I don't do anything about what pains him. But one of the paralyzing pieces in this puzzle, if you're anything like me and you are, is that I'm afraid of doing the wrong thing. But do you know what helps me overcome that fear? Contentment in Christ. Because I'm content in Christ, because I know my salvation is secure, I'm not as worried about saying the stupid thing. I will say the stupid thing, right? I know that much. But I also remember that my salvation is secure in Christ. I am content in the person and the work of Christ, and so I can move forward. Paul says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you had revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Now, he doesn't want them to think, though, that his contentment is based on their performance. So he goes on, verse 11. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, 
abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. You've probably heard those words. Now, sometimes it helps to understand a topic by considering what it is not. So contentment is not found in the middle between need and abundance. Sometimes we think of contentment as on the scale. It's somewhere on the scale between poverty and riches. And if we're poor, we think contentment is closer to the riches, right? And if we're rich, we think contentment is in having less stuff to deal with. But it's not. You can be very poor and be discontent. You can be very rich and be discontent. So contentment is not just somewhere on the scale, Contentment is not found in getting out of our current circumstances as much as it is found in the midst of our current circumstances. If you have a 12-ounce cup, you're not going to be content with two ounces of liquid, but neither are you going to be content with 16 ounces of liquid, right? You'll just have a mess, and you'll complain about the mess. What are you going to be content with? A 12-ounce cup is satisfied or content with 12 ounces. So it's not on the scale. It's not found by ignoring reality, right? Contentment is not found by just closing our eyes and ignoring all the problems in the world. Have you ever met someone who seemed detached from his or her circumstances? They were just out of touch with the reality of the world. Sometimes it's said of Christians that they're so heavenly minded, they're of no earthly good. That's the charge there, right? And we're, we're not talking about you know, somebody being detached from their circumstances in a healthy way, but, but in a, if, you know, they don't exist if I don't acknowledge them sort of way. I think of Jurassic Park, right? That kind of mentality. If I close my eyes, the dinosaurs can't see me, and I, you know, they won't get me. And we try to treat our world that way. We think, okay, I, there's a lot of problems in the world. I'm just going to close my eyes, and if I can't see them, well, they can't get me. Of course, if you've seen the movie, you know it doesn't work that way, right? Now, sometimes, you know, this isn't contentment, it's ignorance, stoic detachment, almost emotionless. And sometimes as Christians, we can spiritualize this, right? We'll say, well, I'm blessed. I'm blessed. Meanwhile, we're burdened, right? But we'll say, I'm blessed. Well, great. Yes, yes, you are, right? And I'm glad that you're focused on that. But that doesn't disconnect you with reality. Paul, just a few verses earlier, reminded them of those who turned away from the cross. And he says, of whom I now tell you with tears. Don't miss that. It's only verses away from Paul saying, I know how to be content. And Paul saying, I'm weeping over people who have left the faith. You see, you can be content in Jesus and weep. You can be content in Christ and weep into your pillow at night. Think of Jesus himself, right? If anybody was content in Christ, it would be Christ, right? But what did Jesus do when he heard that his good friend Lazarus had died, right? He wept. You can be content in Jesus and we. Contentment is not found by ignoring reality, nor is it a goal to be achieved. If you strive for contentment, you'll never find it. You'll always want more. One theologian said that contentment in modern America is like the horizon. It's always just out of reach. We're always striving for it. We always want it, but we can never quite get it. The very second you, you get what you thought would make you content, you, you want the next thing, right? Or, or you want to get more out of the thing you finally got and soak it for all it's worth. Especially those of us who are type A leader, right? High dominance on the disc profile. We're, all, we're go getting it. 
We want it. Rather, Paul says, contentment is a secret to be learned. It's a result of, what, of knowing what Paul lays out in verse 13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now that phrase, through him, can be easily misunderstood as the little three-foot boy on the basketball court proves, right? There he is holding his NBA-sized ball, looking up at that NBA regulation height hoop and thinking, okay, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I'm about to dunk a basketball. Brother, I love you. No, you're not. Okay, not without a trampoline and some help. All right? But he thinks, ah, ah, I can do it. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, and that's what's pressing on me right now, the all things. I got to dunk that basketball. Here we go. Right? And now, we're not so foolish, right? We just don't stand on a basketball court and think it. We think it in the workplace. We think it in our family. We think it in our personal lives. We see an obstacle to overcome, and we think Jesus is the means to overcoming the obstacle. Jesus is not the means through which we get to some other treasure that will finally satisfy us. Jesus is the satisfying treasure. If we think, I can do all things through him who strengthens me, and if we interpret that to mean, so there's this really hard thing that I need to do, and I can do it through Christ, and when I've finally done it, then I'll be on the other side of having done it, and I'll finally be satisfied. Then I'll be happy. Then I'll be content. But contentment in our mind is on the other side of doing that hard task, and Jesus is how I get there. No, friends, Jesus is not merely the provider of the strength that will get you to contentment. He is the contentment. It's easier to understand this if we translate it in him, in Christ. Now, I'm not changing the Bible, right? Don't, don't hear me doing that. I'm helping us turn the diamond of the verse in a different direction so that we see it through a different, delight, uh, different light. It's easier to understand if we translate it in him. I can do all things in him who strengthens me. Or another way to put it, in Christ, I am strengthened for all things. In Christ, I am strengthened for all things. You see the difference? We hear and we think, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And the order of our thinking in that, uh, in that sentence is I. I'm the most important person in the verse. We start with I. Everybody loves talking about them. So we hear that verse and we think, I, 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 the, the me monster effect, right? Talk about me. And we think, I, and then we think of all of the things that we have to do. We have to pay bills. We have to figure out what in the world's going to happen with school this year. We have to make a plan while nobody knows how to make a plan anymore. We, we have to do all of these things. So I can do all things. And, and so we've got to do all this. And then finally we get to Jesus. Paul never meant for us to get to Jesus last. He always intends for us to get to Jesus first. So when you think, in Christ, I am strengthened for all things. This is contentment, to know that in Christ, I am strengthened for all things. That's why Paul says, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance, and need. Paul says, I know how to be brought low. That is, I know how to be overlooked. I know how to be mistreated. I, I know how to be thought less of than other people to be walked over all over. I know in all circumstances which are humbling or even humiliating, Paul says, I know how to handle that. 
And I know how to abound. I know how to handle excess. I know how to possess riches without being possessed by riches. Christ strengthens you not only to handle seasons of humiliation, but to handle seasons of exaltation as well. Friends, can you handle being complimented without becoming overly prideful? Right? If, if you don't have a relationship with Jesus that can navigate the waters of abundance, then you don't have a relationship that could handle the waters of need either. We don't need Jesus when we're poor and not need him when we're rich. We don't need Jesus when we weep and not when we rejoice. We need him all the time, all the time. In Christ, I am strengthened for all things. This is the secret of contentment. Sinclair Ferguson explains Christian contentment is the direct fruit of having no higher ambition than to belong to the Lord and to be totally at his disposal in the place he appoints at the time he chooses with the provision he is pleased to make. Here's the deal. There's nobody in the room that can say 2020 is going exactly as planned. If you are, you're lying, right? You can't say it. Your boss can't say it. The people that work under you can't say it. There's nobody that can say 2020 is going exactly as planned. Nor is there anybody that is going 2020 is going exactly as I had hoped. Right? Nobody said, I hope it turns out this way. Which means we're all dealing with differing levels of discontentment. We're all frustrated. We're all tired, we're all weary, we're all over it, right? So what does Christian contentment look like when you're over it? That's what Paul's asking us. And he's saying it looks like this to know the secret that in Christ you are strengthened for all things. That's how you get through 2020 is to be in Christ. That's how you experience joy when you don't find any it's in Christ. It's to look at all of your circumstances, whether you are in need and want or you have plenty to look at all of your circumstances through the lens of Christ. Sinclair Ferguson again. Christian contentment is the direct fruit of having no higher ambition than to belong to the Lord. Do you belong to the Lord? To be totally at his disposal. Are you at his disposal in the place he appoints at the time he chooses with the provision he is pleased to make. Matt Westerholm posted the, this illustration on desiringgod.org that helps us understand this. Looking at our circumstances through the lens of contentment. He asked the question, how can God's promises help us through difficult circumstances? Imagine this. It's a Friday night and a young lady is at home waiting for her longtime boyfriend to pick her up for dinner. They have not selected a particular time for their date, but by 6 o'clock, she's waiting in her room for the evening to begin. And then it's 6.10, and then soon 6.30. Finally, at 6.42, she hears a honk from her driveway. All right, it's not good, right? Y'all know that. Y'all understand. Not good, okay? Guys, if you're wondering, that's not good, all right? Fighting back disappointment, she storms to her boyfriend's car and climbs into the passenger seat. Where do you want to go, he asks. I don't care, she says. Nothing could be further from the truth. Panera, he suggests. His dad manages the local Panera, so it's clear her boyfriend isn't interested in spending a lot of money on her. And what could be meaningful about bagels? So they pull away. They arrive at the restaurant. She dutifully picks two. Right? He's a, he, he is quiet 
a sure sign of his distraction and detachment. Each slurp of her broccoli cheddar drains away her soup and her hope for a wonderful evening. Want to go to the beach, he asks. The beach? Oh, boy. If she had known he wanted to go to the beach, she would not have worn her cardigan sweater. What a disaster. Could anything have changed this evening? Ah, there's the question. Now imagine the start of that same evening again. But now, at 6 o'clock, the young lady's phone rings, and it's her friend calling from the mall. Hello? Guess who I just saw at the mall? It was your boyfriend. Girl, he was at the jewelry store, and I saw him with a ring box. Tonight is the night you get engaged. Start planning right now for your wedding. Everything changes. Now, each passing moment builds the anticipation in our heart. It's 6.10, then 6.30. Wow, she thinks he must be planning something big. At 6.42, she hears a honk from her driveway. Still not a good idea, guys, just by the way, all right? But fighting back excitement, she tries not to run to her boyfriend's car. She climbs into the passenger seat. Where do you want to go, he asks. I don't care, she says. She means it. Anywhere he takes her will be perfect. Panera, he suggests. His dad manages the local Panera, so it's clear he has something special at the restaurant. And the bagels are shaped like, oh my, it's, it's wedding rings, shaped like wedding rings. So, some of you are like circles, I don't, I don't know. No, no, wedding rings, shaped like wedding rings, right? They pull away and arrive at the restaurant. As she orders, she is struck that she is picking two for as long as they both shall live. <laughs> He's quiet. A sure sign that his mind is filled with the nervous gravity of the moment as she slurps her broccoli cheddar soup, checking each spoonful for a hidden ring. Want to go to the beach, he asks. The beach? Oh, my. The sun will set over that beach in about 30 minutes. What a perfect ending to the evening. You see, when you know how the story ends, everything changes. That's the secret of Christian contentment. So believer, how does your story end? With a resurrection, your perishable, dishonored, weak, and fallen body will likely die unless Jesus returns first, but it will be raised as imperishable, glorious, powerful, and spiritual. In your flesh, you shall see God. Your story ends with a reunion. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Your cry for your Abba Father will be answered as you are swept into his arms. Your story ends with you seeing Jesus face to face, not through a mask, right? Thank God. Your story ends with a wedding. Your bridegroom comes on the clouds with a glorious entourage of angels to bring you the home that he is preparing for all eternity. Our small tastes our small taste of the coming kingdom will be fulfilled with a feast, a wedding feast. Start planning for your wedding. So are you trying to worship on a bad day? As you gather with your church for worship, look for reminders about the ending. 
Because of the ending, we can be steadfast and movable and always abounding in the work of the Lord. Today, allow God's promised glorious ending in Christ to shape your experience of current circumstances. No pandemic has the authority to undo God's promises. No pandemic, no crazy unplanned year has the strength to undo what God has in store for you. Allow the promises of God's glorious ending to lead you to be content, even in the most frustrating of circumstances. The question is not ultimately, are you content in your stage of life? It's not, are you content with your current productivity or income? It's not, are you content with how much certainty you have about what's coming in the next three months or 12 months or 10 years? The question is ultimately, are you content in Christ? Do you know that in Christ I am strengthened for all things? Jeremiah Burroughs wrote this. Christians miss a great deal of comfort which they might have from the particular promises in the gospel if they would consider their connection to the root, the great covenant that God has made with them in Christ. So can you say with the Apostle Paul, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? As you look at all of the things that you don't have in 2020, are you satisfied with all that you do have in Christ? Friends, when we look at the tensions of the day, there's so much to be contentious about. But when we lift our eyes from the contention of the moment to the Christ of all eternity, then we can be content. Let us fix our eyes on Christ and be content. Let's pray together.